right, well, good morning. Can you hear me okay? Is that okay? Okay. Well, obviously, I'm wearing my pajamas. Uh, children's ministry does this thing every year on daylight savings where the kids can just roll out of bed, make it a little bit easier uh, as we lose this hour. Personally, I love this time of year. I don't like losing sleep, but I like the longer days. I like the warmer weather. Just makes me happy, less depressed, uh, less cynical about the world. So anyways, we are in the middle of a series through the book of Mark, and we are looking at, specific, looking at this specifically through the lens of uh, Tim Keller's teaching, uh, pastor and author out of New York City. So a lot of our ideas for these sermons uh, come from his work. So if you have your Bibles, uh, would you turn with me to Mark chapter 8? We're going to be looking at what is a very pivotal turn in the narrative, uh, in the work of Jesus So we are in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. So there's a lot here. And so just to kind of bring it back to earth, what's going on is that uh, Jesus is ministering in the area of Caesarea Philippi. So this is in the northern part of Israel. And it's centered around this geologic phenomenon where this water comes out of the ground from the hillsides, eventually feeds into the Sea of Galilee and feeds the Jordan River. And so for generations, different religions and empires have has used this area as a place of worship. So there's sort of this spiritual mysticism around this land. And so it makes sense in a way that Jesus would choose to have this um, really significant theological, philosophical, yet personal conversation with his disciples. And he asked them a question that is highly relevant for us today in a postmodern, post-Christian, pluralistic society. 
he asks them, who do people say that I am? What, what are the politicians saying? What's the media saying? What are your friends saying about who I am? And so in, in their day, it would make sense that, well, hey, in Israel in the first century, some say that you're John the Baptist come back from the dead. Some say maybe you're Elijah. Uh, others say that you're some sort of prophet. It's a relevant question for us. Who are people saying that Jesus is today? But then Jesus does something where he takes it to the next level. He looks into his disciples' eyes, and in a really vulnerable space, he asks them pointedly, but who do you say that I am? Who do you think that I am? And again, this is a question that's highly relevant for us. And at the end of the day, this is the question that determines the trajectory of our lives, both in this life and in the life to come. And speaking of baptism, this is essentially the question that we're answering. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? And so it's interesting that Mark records only Peter's response. He says, you are the Messiah, which is a Jewish term for the anointed one, the chosen one. In Greek, it's Christos, or the Christ, the one that we've been waiting for to deliver us from oppression, to restore us to our original glory. We see in verse 31 that there's this transition. Mark tells us that Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man, who is Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the religious establishment, killed and raised on the third day. He says that he must suffer, that this is a necessity. And again, this begs a question that is highly relevant for us today. Why did Jesus have to die? Th think about that. Have you ever pondered that question? If God is all-powerful, indeed the creator of this whole system, why couldn't he just snap his fingers and say, well, it's all good. You're forgiven. You're redeemed. Everything is fine. Now, this is a question too big for me. I'm not a philosopher. I'm not uh, a professor. So this is what Tim Keller says. He essentially gives us three reasons why Jesus' death, why his suffering was a necessity. And so we'll start big and, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll work our way in. So the first reason is a cosmic necessity. That if we look at the grand scheme of things, of how this universe operates, we see that there is a pattern of violence in this world. In fact, when, when I reflect personally on what's going on in Ukraine, there's a part of me that, that just cringes. That we live in the 21st century. How is it that this still happens? But then at the same time, there's just this plain reality that when we look through the pages of history, this is absolutely not anything new. In fact, this is something that we trace all the way back to Cain and Abel, that there's something about the human heart that has not changed. As much as technology has progressed, as much as we have progressed in communication and medical technology, and unfortunately, military technology, the human condition remains the same. 
And Keller makes his argument that the cross had to be violent, that Jesus' life had to come to an unnatural end in order to match the violence of humanity. Secondly, he makes the case that there is a legal necessity to the cross. And this is something that we see plainly throughout the New Testament. Keller makes the argument that if you came over to my house, for example, and you broke a lamp, I have one of two options. One, I can say, well, you broke the lamp. Now you need to pay me for the lamp. Uh, that'll be $100. Or it, in my house, it, that'd be $9.99 from Ikea. Um, <laughs> Or the other option would be for me to simply say, I, I forgive you. In which case then, I would take the hit. I would go buy a new lamp. I would just live in darkness in that room. One of two options needs to happen on a legal level. But it's important to note that when it comes to forgiveness, a lamp is one thing, but being wrong personally, being betrayed, being hurt, is something totally different, that there is a, a real cost there. And throughout his book, Keller makes the point that all love is self-sacrificial. All love requires sacrifice on some level. And then lastly, Keller makes the point that there is a personal necessity to the cross. Jesus says, I must suffer for deeply personal reasons. He makes the point that when we look at the deepest need of humanity, and I, I do find this fascinating, because there is a need that runs much deeper than what we would consider the psychological, the emotional, the relational, that there is a physio physiological significance to human love. I find it really fascinating to look into the studies of babies and infants that are either neglected or loved and the physiological response that that causes, that it truly is a matter in certain, some circumstances of life and death. The human heart needs love. It needs unconditional love. But Keller explains that if you look at the nature of what we would consider true love, it's this giving of oneself without the need for any type of reciprocation. But we also know that there's this dilemma within humanity that all of us have needs, that indeed there actually is no such thing as unconditional love, at least in this state. Keller writes this in his book. In true love, your aim is to spend yourself and use yourself for the happiness of the other, because your greatest joy is that person's joy. Therefore, your affection is unconditional. You give it regardless of whether your loved one is meeting your needs. And it's radically vulnerable. You spend everything, hold nothing back, give it all away. Our real problem is that nobody is actually fully capable of giving true love. We want it desperately, but we can't give it. All of our love is somewhat now, I find this really interesting, because as I read that, this idea of a love that is fake, I was reminded of the great Korean theologians known as BTS. 
Now, I'm just curious, how many of you know who BTS is? Now, keep your hands up. How many of you would consider yourselves fans of BTS? Well, be proud, be proud. Don't, don't be ashamed. If Jungkook was standing right here, would, would, you, would you be ashamed? I'm just kidding. I, I'm actually not a fan either, but my life is inundated with BTS culture because my wife loves BTS. In fact, she was at a movie theater last night watching a live screening of their concert in Seoul. And um, BTS has this song called Fake Love. And it's really interesting because at face value, as I'm listening to the lyrics, which are mostly in Korean, I have no idea what this song is about. My thought is that it is a critique of the fake love that they receive, either from former romantic interests or from fans or from fake people. But as I looked into it and looked up the English translations of the lyrics, this song is actually much more profound than that. It's actually this self-critique of their own ability to love as they would like to love. And in fact, their entire album, of which this song is a part of, has that theme of, of, of who are we? What does it mean to, to love? What does it mean to, to be known and to live out of a, a trueness? From their song, Fake Love, I'm going to read a, a few lyrics just to kind of give you a taste. For you, I could pretend like I was happy when I was sad. For you, I could pretend like I was strong when I was hurt. I wish love was perfect as love itself. I wish all my weaknesses could be hidden. I grew a flower that can't be bloomed in a dream that can't come true. Sounds kind of like the writer of Ecclesiastes. Like there's this honest sort of wistful Here's the ideal. Here's what I know is beautiful and true, what I long for. But here's where I'm at. Here's what I experience in this broken world. But the beautiful thing about Jesus' message, and uh, I do find this compelling, is that there is indeed a dream that will come true. And it's called the kingdom of God. There is a love that is perfect, that fits the description of true, perfect love. And, and, and that we see in the cross. That is the personal necessity of Jesus' suffering. As we look back at our passage, there's always this internal dialogue that Jesus has with his disciples, where he asks these questions, where he has these intimate conversations. And then there's these conversations that he has with the crowd. This is broadcast um, to the masses, and it's broadcast time and time again. This isn't something that he just says one time and they write it down. This is a message that gets propagated throughout his ministry. And so we see in verse 34, he calls the crowd together, and he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And so although there is this way that Jesus paves with his own sacrifice so that we don't have to, there's also this invitation to follow in his footsteps. Not necessarily to suffer in the same exact way that he did, but he does call us 
to this new life, to deny our old way of living, our old way of thinking, what the Bible at many times would call the flesh, in order to own a new life. I love how he says it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? I think about BTS and I think about 50,000 screaming female fans drooling over them at SoFi Stadium. I was there, by the way. <laughs> what good is that if you lose your soul? What good is it to have beautiful eyes and perfect hair and skin that's so smooth and milky white if you lose your soul? In verse 18, uh, I'm sorry, verse 38, this kind of made me cringe a little bit. Jesus finishes his discourse with, if anyone is shamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. It's kind of one of those things where you, you, you kind of, you, you're tracking, you're tracking, they're like, whoa, Jesus can be ashamed of me? Wait, wait, what, what about grace? How, how, how does this work where there's now this condition? But as I was kind of praying through this, I sense that the Spirit was saying, do you realize that God is not ashamed of you? Do you realize that because of the gospel, God the Father looks on you the same way he looks at his son, with nothing but affection, nothing with approval, nothing but approval. And so in the benediction, when, when, when we say, may Yahweh, the Lord, may his face shine on you, this is what we're remembering, this is what we're declaring. And obviously, Jesus doesn't parse his words that there's a reality here that either you're with Jesus or you're living life apart from the source of life. That either you are not ashamed of the gospel, not ashamed of Jesus, or, or you're ashamed of him and, and you're apart from him. I want to close with this quote from a missionary um, named Jim Elliott, who was actually killed on the mission field by the very people that he was there to serve. And this was found in one of his journals. He writes this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I love this because this is exactly what Jesus is saying. And this is true not only in life and death, but this is true in our everyday lives. What is it that is fleeting? What is it that we cannot hold on to? And what is truly eternal? What is Jesus inviting us into? So I want to leave us with this thought, with this image. Um, and I'm going to pray for us as we close our time.